As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we'll react to England's relegation from the Nations League after their 1-0 defeat against Italy in Milan, meaning it's now five games without a win for Gareth Southgate. What does it mean for his future in charge of the country? We'll also discuss Rob Page's Wales. They are also relegated from the top tier in the Nations League, but maybe the legacy of 2016 continues. What next for them? We'll also be discussing a big weekend in the Women's Super League with a huge attendance at the Emirates Stadium for the North London Derby. And we'll tell you what's been riling Alison Rudd. Welcome to Wrexham, discussed on the game podcast and much, much more. Hello again, welcome back to the game. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Alison Rudd and Tom Clark on this Monday morning. And look, well, there are many things going wrong in the world. We're going to cheer you up, okay, over the next 45 minutes or so. Things are hard to understand at times. Sometimes you don't know where you stand. But one thing does reassure me. We haven't entered the upside down. There's nothing strange going on in this world. We are still in our version of reality. Because one game out from a World Cup, grown adults are blowing a gasket, red-faced, about to explode veins in necks over the England team. And that is how it should be before a World Cup, okay? So everything's all right, guys. Forget the bad news. This England team, okay, this England team are readying themselves to disappoint a nation once again. You can breathe a sigh of relief, guys. This is how it should be. This is how football should be. Isn't that right, Tom? I can't help but feel you're being a little bit sarcastic. No, not at all. Not at <laughs> all. Not a smidge. No. Do you know what? There is something. There is something a little bit reassuring about it. it wouldn't wouldn't really be football if we were all happy and pleased and going off to the World Cup, truly believing that we were going to win it. No, that well, would be weird. Well, also, we did nearly win a Euros, which started with us all slagging off England, not playing very well. We all remember the Scotland draw, don't we? Remember this podcast, famously so, with our Scottish counterparts saying, honestly, you lot don't know you're born. And we then nearly won the tournament. So you, you are right in, in some respects. And this is why this is going to be the only football podcast that you will listen to this week that's pleased that England were beaten 1-0 in Italy, a result that means they are relegated from the top tier in the Nations League, having failed to win any of their first five games. They actually played Germany at Wembley tonight in their final game before heading to Qatar in mid-November. So by the time you're listening to this, things could have got worse or better. Let's be positive for Gareth Southgate. Let's talk about uh, the game and Gareth Southgate, Alisson, because he called the performance a step in the right direction, having lost 4-0 against Hungary last time out. I mean, maybe it was. What are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, no, well, it wasn't a step in the right direction. You can't, you know, bless him for trying. But first of all, getting relegated from the Nations League is a bit like getting dumped when you haven't even been on a first date. 
We're not we're not emotionally invested yet in the Nations League to care about. That's tough. Being... That's happened to me before. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. spoken like someone who, yeah, who exactly. hasn't been never had that before. happen to them before. Clearly, <laughs> but anyway, carry on. But so I don't. I honestly don't think that is. It's mildly amusing to be relegated from a NAF competition, but it's not significant. So I don't think that particularly matters. And if you want to talk about progress, meaning you concede fewer goals than you conceded in the previous match, I don't think that really matters. What matters is, I think it was perfectly possible for England to have lost 1-0 to Italy and for people to think, yes, this is okay because it was entertaining, interesting. Decisions were made that seemed bold or imaginative. The fans got behind the team. There was some flair on the pitch good passing moves, a sense of integration, a sense of people knowing what the plan was, being comfortable in the formation. And there was none of that. So in that sense, it was not a step forward. It was a step backward because if you were supposed to learn from defeat, and I think it's perfectly possible to do that. And I don't really mind what results are out of the major competitions as long as you use them to to learn stuff. There doesn't that all that seems to have happened is we're getting that malaise gaze and haze over England where the players don't look like they're entirely comfortable anymore and it's a bit of a burden and they're aware of the exposure and that all they're going to get is grief and everyone's going to look like they're not giving all for their country. It's not knitting together. So it, it's a, a probably quite a big step back. I would say it's not about the result; it's about the vibe, and the vibe was poor. In terms of step in the right direction, what was most telling to me is the kind of things Southgate was saying, because it felt to me, as someone who's discussed on this podcast the idea that he might leave after Qatar regardless of what happens, it felt a little bit like he was teeing that up as a conversation piece already going into the World Cup. To me, it, he, you know, he's a man who handles the press incredibly well, and he's done so with great dignity in very serious situations for England. But he is also quite good at managing his own persona and his own standing within the game. And it did feel like he was opening opening, opening it up to the floor. Let's talk about me, guys. Let's talk about... Because he did also say, as well as saying this is a step in the right direction, he said, look, I'm in big trouble if it doesn't go doesn't go right. It doesn't matter if I've got a contract till 2024, et cetera, et cetera. But I, just want, I want to come back to your admittedly slightly sarky intro, Hugh. There is, there is a sense that this isn't massively worrying for England because they've, they've, they're not necessarily doing anything worse than they were doing in the past. Like we, we did really well in tournaments, but we didn't beat big teams. When we came up against the big teams in opposition, Italy in a final, Croatia in a semi-final, we fell short. And so when you then look at the World Cup, you know, I went back on the Times Predictor online this morning and did it again. And we got through to the quarterfinals and went out to France. Oh, that's like, all right then. But I mean, isn't it? But that's what they did before. So what? So the expectation should be bigger now, shouldn't it? But that's it. Expectation grows incrementally because you do a semi-final and a final. So those things as title achievements, yes, mean that okay, well we're going to win the next one. But actually, if you break it down and look at some of the results, look at the teams that we were beaten by, and look at where we fell short, we under Southgate we have been a team that have been hard to beat, have conceded not many goals. And not scored many goals generally. Yes, I mean, Paul Joyce has written a fascinating piece this morning, one goal from 63 shots, but we've never really scored that many goals. We didn't in the Euros apart from that win against Ukraine. But so you're, you're... I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not defending him. All I'm saying is that perhaps we need to put it in a wider context in our, for our, in our own minds that this, this isn't that different to what it's always been under Southgate. Yeah, but what does that mean? 
I mean, does that mean that continuing under underachievement is okay then? Because no, because be. he because he's overachieved really. How is he overachieved? Given that the if you add up the cost of the players. Oh, you worth. can't do the cost of the players. No, we're a big country. We're a big country. But I agree with Alison in that. I, I was talking about this at the weekend with friends. In terms of international squads, particularly when you look at strength in depth, I only think that there are three countries with better international squads than England, in my opinion, France, Brazil and Argentina. Because when you look at the replacements, and I saw Jamie Carragher and at the top level playing this, Champions League football and things like that. Well, yeah, I'm not sure. it's like centre backs, central midfield. Like I mean, it doesn't matter. If you look at the player. number, what is it? Twenty plus. And if you look at the replacements on the bench, you look at the people that aren't even making it on the bench. If you talk about this Italy game in terms of quality, there's a shed load when it comes to England. And particularly when you look at other international nations, that none of them are... Look, we can make the argument that you don't have to play particularly great football in international football to be a good side. I, I would agree with that. But England aren't playing good enough football to be a, a decent international side at this point in time. And they have more than enough talent to do so. There is clearly a tactical issue if you can't score a goal in open play in four and a half hours or whatever, whatever it is. You can't turn around and say we're... that. that well, that is not an underachievement right now. No, of course that, it is. That is, and that's why I referenced Paul Joyce's piece this morning. But I'm saying in a broader sense, when we think about Southgate and England, these kind of results, these kind of performances where Alisson said against Italy, we looked a bit brighter, we looked a little bit more creative, but we failed to score. There were things like Jude Bellingham to get excited by. But then on the flip side, in big big tournaments, you have games like Tunisia in the World Cup. You know, We nearly drew that game, were it not for a last late goal. Mm-hmm. Scotland drew nil nil, looked pretty flat. Algeria in a World Cup, if you look further back and if stuff. If you like, go further back, this but, squad should be avoiding performances and results. Like but the those. Southgate era hasn't been the same as the Algeria performances. Let's be honest. And if we look at this World Cup, well, that'll be the test, won't it? Because this group is very similar in in a sense to that World Cup. Mm. And so I I would say I have faith in us winning games and getting out of the group in the World Cup, and then we'll be having the same conversation around not getting past teams in the knockout stages. We can, I, go, we can go back to that old argument about where England should get in the World Cup, though. But, it's not really about getting but, out of the group stage. It's not, it's not about getting out of the group stage yeah. for a club like a country like England. But all I'm saying is that Southgate has shown that he can achieve in tournaments in this manner. What, what are we expecting different? What we're expecting different is for him to have changed since the Euros which isn't that long a time, into a newer, more exciting way of playing. And I don't think you can do that as an international manager. I don't think you can I change. But I don't think they're even as good as they were in the Euros. And they weren't that amazing in the Euros. I think partly because they've tried to transition into this more exciting, more experimental, more free-flowing way of playing. And and you can't do that. that that's, that's, that's the point I'm trying to get back to here, is that Southgate win 1-0, like you know come fall fall short against a big team in the knockout stages that's what we've been at but we've done very well with that to get to certain stages in big tournaments no we've i do feel england have been limping because by virtue of the fact they have so many great players i with hindsight southgate should have gone after the euros this should that's, be a yeah, new yeah that's kind of what we're getting we are where we are regime, a new manager. era a new era but but it, what we're seeing is evidence of how stale it has become if the players know you very well, and I do feel he's so open, Southgate. There's a lot that's lovely about him as a person, and he's so open and so honest. Everyone knows him. The players know him. I don't think they're scared of him. I don't think there's a respect there anymore born of what a great tactical genius he is. Look at his CV. I mean, my kids 
every 10 minutes we're watching an England game, they go, what did he do? Oh, did he get sacked from Middlesbrough? Is that all he did? Mm. Um, it's not, he's, he doesn't have that kudos that, of a of manager that... who knows how to win. That when it's the elite, when you're up against the elite, you're up against a great tactician or some, or a team that maybe just has one star player who who will dominate midfield. Clearly, you know where I'm going with this. Say it's, you know, Luka Modric or whatever. Everything just falls apart because you need somebody with that st- that stardust who's been there, who knows. When it, the pressure's on, the cameras are on, it's the biggest game ever, can rise above it and have that aura of authority and knows what to tweak and what to do and who to deploy to make it happen. And he doesn't. He's just very nice. And that's not good. You know, you don't win anything by being a very nice bloke. Uh, listen, I don't mind him being a nice guy if he wins. And I know I get your point. Being a nice guy isn't conducive to winning. Uh, maybe I agree with that. I spoke about Graham Potter recently in, in his persona. Um but I don't think in international football, you know, teams are not going to play like Manchester City or Liverpool in international football. When you look at England's basics, their basics aren't great at the moment. They don't really dominate possession against any sides and they're not great passers of the ball. They clearly do not score and attack very well at this point in time. Do you think they know who they are when they put on an England shirt? You see, we have no identity and we've never had an identity. Not since no, 1966 I... as England haven't had well, we've an got, identity. I spoke no, about I the identity at I... the top, thank you very much. No, I don't think that's <laughs> true. That is our identity. I think that's, but I think that's the exact point. I think Southgate in these tournaments, particularly the World Cup, gave England an identity, a very basic one. And you're talking about scoring goals. I was thinking about that on, on the way to the studio to talk about all this now and... You know, we scored from set pieces, penalties, headers. Mm-hmm. I think other than that, Jesse Lingard curler, I think, against Panama. I think that was pretty much how we scored goals in the 2018 World Cup. And that was down to him. Like, he identified those of methods of scoring that would fit for the players that he had that were probably quite simple to implement on the training how would you describe? How would you sum up, then, that identity? Hard to beat. Efficient. That's not an identity, that's a description. That's not an identity. Okay, well, you give me an example of an identity, I'll give you Southgate's Oh, so a team that's uh, intent on the counter-press, uh, full of energy, you know, goes for it, you know, heavy metal football, that sort of thing. Okay, well, I'd say efficient, pragmatic, uh, passionate about where they're from in terms of having giving England an identity off the pitch, which they definitely have done under Southgate. And as I say you know doing things that meant they could achieve impressive results in major tournaments I mean, which they have they've they've achieved in major tournaments we've got to a semi-final and a final not done that for ages you can't so the say identity of England is what you're saying is is that pragmatic they have achievement. some of the best they have one of the very best i would say it's probably the second best in terms of what they cost t- t- uh, teams squad of players no. in the world and they rely on the fact they've probably slightly better than most people they come up against and just, play negatively. You, That's what you seem to be saying. No, I'm not saying they play negatively. I say they play pragmatically. But you rely totally on set pieces. What, what, what I, we weren't totally on it, but I'm saying that was a positive. He had identified that as a way of scoring, and he did that in matches like against Sweden. But I take your point on, say, someone like Luka Modric, and you and Hugh both keep talking up England's players. Like Luka Modric as a player in central midfield. Like, yeah, fine, Declan Rice, incredibly. Yeah, but you wouldn't swap, swap England squad for Croatia's, would you? I'm not saying you would, but you're talking about got one brilliant player. That's not the point. Okay, but they've got the one overall quality. brilliant, superb player like Alison's talking about in terms of top, top level experience. And think about that Italy squad that we lost to in the final. You know, you only read, need to read Giorgio Chiellini's excellent interview with Tom Roddy that I know you guys talked about already. But 
you know, he was talking about that kind of mentality. England have a lot of talent. That's true. That's undeniable. They have a lot of exciting players, but they don't have that top level experience. You know, even someone like Harry Kane, who is world-class striker, top five strikers in the world, what an honour and privilege it is to have him in our England side, is not that level in terms of Luka Modric level, what you're talking about, Alison. Control a game, dictate a game. Con- There's only a handful of those players in the world. I mean, France won a World Cup without one of those players. You don't need to have a Luka Modric to win a, a tournament. Italy didn't have one of those players. All I'm trying to do is put some expectations on the talent that we have and how that's talent and excitement in terms of youth and attacking players is very different to someone like a Luka Modric and I know there aren't that many in the world so I'm not saying that every team has five and England don't have any but that is the that is another difference and that's not something that Southgate can do anything about listen if you think about the time that he has been in charge of England we should have an identity we should know what a Gareth Southgate team is and that's my point I think we did in big tournaments and that was my point at the top that we're kind of we've tried in the last few months to switch that, which you can't do as an international manager when you don't get the players that you want half the time. You get call people up to squads and they drop out two days later because they know they've got a Champions League match two weeks later, which is true. Come on, you can't do Still more than enough quality. Whoever yeah, he's quality, got at his disposal... You're talking about implementing an identity on a group of players. We had identities in the last tournaments. It served as well. We should probably go back to this World Cup and see how we get on. Okay, so say, say for some very strange reason... Each of us was asked to take over for the World Cup. What identity would you say? I would, okay, I'll start it off. I would say English football's fantastic. Premier League, best product in the world. We're going to play to, but we're going to play to our traditional English strengths and we're going to play 4 4 2. And we're going to ignore midfield. Midfield's just going to be, you know, the the kickers and the cloggers and the, the fighters. Mm hmm. And everything's going to come uh, from long balls if necessary. Uh, someone like Harry Kane dropping deep when he, he can do he can do that well if someone bothers to make a, an intelligent run. And we're going to be energy, energy, pride, passion, remembering that the Premier League is the best product in the world because ninety percent of the players come from the Premier League. And just don't try and pretend to be something we're not. The praise that Jude Bellingham is getting is because he plays in Germany and he has a tiny bit of that foreign player aura about him in that he can pass the ball he can put his foot on the ball see a pass and play it I don't think he even is that sort of player I think he's an athletic box to box sort Mm. of player actually and and we're imagining that he's something that he's not let's just play to our strengths we have people who every week run and run some more the best performances you see every week in the Premier League you look back on them and you think most of the time you think wow the energy the, the lack of time the opposition got on the ball. That, and that's what, that is what England are good at. So exploit it. Go for it. What would you do? I mean, in a weird way, I think I've kind of won Alison round in terms of Gareth Southgate and pragmatism because it sounded a little bit like, like what you were going for in terms of your plan for the World Cup there. Pragmatism. My, my plan has nothing to do with Gareth Southgate. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it sounded like in terms of a pragmatic approach. No, and it's I, not pragmatic. That is, that is saying, for goodness sake, can we... Can we go out and feel we are England? I've never been able to get emotionally attached to England because I don't know what they are. They don't represent me. They don't reflect never. the football I watch every week in the Premier League. It's got nothing to do with it. What a wasted opportunity. Because how many of the England players play for the same teams? They're scattered across all the different teams. Like You don't have a team like, say, Barcelona that then translated into playing for Spain 
that kind of identity you don't see. You know, you support a team at the top level of the Premier League that is made up of a myriad of stars from all different nations. You, you're, you're probably never going to get that with the Premier League yeah, because the of the way the Premier League in, is the built. The players who come into England from those other nations, they always take time to adapt because we play at such a high pace and intensity. I think they can have that high intensity and pace and aggression under Southgate. I don't well, then why don't, have, why don't they have it? Because I think they're still trying to appease all the people that you, you're referencing with your Jude Bellingham point that are saying things like Hugh saying, understandably, because we do have a great amount of talent. We do have loads of exciting players. But you can't just take that and go, right, we'll become Manchester City at an international stage. You can't do that. I don't think you can do that. And so I think, you, I wouldn't go I wouldn't go 4-4-2. I'd go 3-4-3, but I'd have a similar game plan to you, Alison. 3-4-1-2 for me. I think one of the, the things is, I think there's too much selection for Gareth Southgate. He hasn't really got a role for a number of like good players, the likes of Phil Foden, Jack Grealish, hasn't really decided what they're going to do for him. Bakayu Saka, we saw him at left wing back, hasn't really decided what these players are going to offer him in a, in a starting 11, moves them around, gives them different positions. There's part of me that wants to basically couple what you've both said. That's why I've gone for a 3-4-1-2 in that I'd put two strikers on, I'd get the ball wide and I'd cross it in and I would bypass midfield and I'd play if Jordan Henderson's fit alongside Declan Rice because he is an experienced player. He's no Luka Modric, no, but he has lifted the biggest trophies in football and Jude Bellingham is a youngster with a lot of responsibility on his shoulder who again doesn't really know what he is. We might complain about what Jordan Henderson is, but he knows what he is on a football pitch and we all do, right? And we know what we're going to get from him as long as he's fit. So there's a part of me that says, push the wing backs on where we've got quality. We've got four right backs. We've got two half decent left wing backs and Saka. You can put him into that mix as well. Get the ball in the box, get bodies in the box, get the ball in the back of the net because we're not going to outplay teams. We're not going to have more possession then good teams in international football. We've shown that over the last five games. We're not going to switch it on against Germany tonight either. See, so, I think yeah. we're in a good place. This is what I mean. We're fine. But, but You weren't wrong, but, you. You were me, being sarcastic, but you're me, not wrong. But, but for me, because... that means, because obviously I, the players that I just mentioned, you know, a Foden, a Grealish, a, a Bellingham, that number 10 role, Mount, massively important, who you're going to choose to play between, behind, sorry, the two strikers. One of them will be Kane. Who's the other one? Is it Abraham? Is it Ivan Tony? Both of them are big guys, and I think that that plays a part in getting them into the box. And in terms of the creation, as you mentioned, Kane can drop deep and help link plays. Brilliant at it. So if you do want to have a more direct on-the-ground passing game, I think you can play through him. But I don't know why he hasn't... Like, he, Listen, I say why he hasn't tried it. He's tried just about everything Gareth Southgate, and none of it's worked, which for me is a bigger issue for him as a coach. He hasn't really got a tune out of them in any of the formations that he's tried which for me that again that is a huge issue because you, you can't create if, you, if you're if you a coach and you can't create clear cut goal scoring opportunities with the players that he has you know available to him whether they play Champions League football but or not that, I'm sorry it's, that, not, it's not good enough that sentence is the problem that Gareth Southgate's had to wrestle with since the Euros and I'm not saying you you were the only person who said it I think back quite a lot to Ian Wright at the start of the Euros picking a team on BBC and his coverage and you know he basically had like Jack Grealish at right back and he was like yeah, let's go for it like, he didn't do that I yeah, know he didn't I know, but you know what very I mean attacking it was like a, a midfield three of like Foden, Grealish and, and Declan yeah, Rice yeah. like Yes, they have talented players. Yes, they have players that can pick passes, beat a man, drop a shot, all these kind of things. But you don't just have that and translate that into a team. That is my point with Gareth Southgate. He deserves credit for trying lots of things. He also deserves criticism, Alison, as you said earlier, for not having a backbone and going, no, sod the lot of you. This is my plan. I don't care whether you don't like it. 
But I think that's where we're then going to come to in the World Cup, where he probably will go, right, we'll sod the lot of you. I'm under real pressure now. He'll go back to the Gareth Southgate identity from previous tournaments and will be tough, hard to beat, probably try and score goals from set pieces or a bit of moment of magic from Harry Kane. And we'll see how we get on. Okay. All right. Just finally on this, just what you mentioned a little bit earlier on about the demeanour and the words of Gareth Southgate, Tom. Are we all on board that this is a pretty short goodbye, actually, rather than the long goodbye for, for Gareth Southgate and that by the end of the year, he will be gone as England manager? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very excited. I've already told producer John to clip up the moment I said it in the preview show when I said England would have a different manager by the end of the Premier League season. Like It just feels like that, doesn't it? Particularly when you have luminaries of the sports journalism world like Alison Rudd saying that he should have gone after the Euros. Like, but it's true. <laughs> the pressure is on. But it's true. It would have been. It could have been the next phase of England because you'd had Southgate's England, which are all the things I outlined. You then had people like yourself, Hugh, Annie, and Wright going. But look at the players. So we could go right over to someone else, and I'll be fascinated to see how they do because they'll still come up with the same problems that we don't have a midfielder of the same quality as Harry Kane. You're relying on Declan Rice as Tony Cascarino said recently he's having a poor season he's trying to find his feet still got a he's never been that player either I think that's that's my know. point so you, you can keep you, going how much English. talent we've got etc etc doesn't translate into a team I think I think Southgate should go whether they England do well moderately well quite well or win it I quite he, right. I, if I, they I, win I, it he's I, definitely he should, he should he should he should he should say not I don't expect him to talk about leaving during the World Cup because that would be counterproductive and everyone would slag him off for it. But I think he should know when the World Cup's over, regardless of how it's gone, reg- even if it looks like there are shoots of recovery, you know, and, and for once they've been entertaining, even if they didn't win it, he should still go. Alison, you said about, and we joked about this at the start of the show, and I'm going to ask it anyway, because you said about applying that kind of Premier League identity. It, it, if, say, we were living in a fantasy land where we lose tonight against Germany 9-0 and Southgate goes, do you know what, I can't be doing it. And there's a short-term manager to give that identity. You could pick anyone. Like, is there a manager? Because this is the thing, I'm struggling to think of a manager that would have the relevant, you know, other than picking like Jurgen Klopp or someone. Well, I think... I- it's just too embarrassing to have someone who isn't English because we are one of the Why? leading nations. No, because it's just wrong. You have Come on. countries who have managers who aren't from that country do so because they need to be hauled up. Thomas they Tuchel? need to play catch-up. Intense. They need to play catch-up. I mean, I wish he was English. I think he's a great short-term impact manager, but he's not English. It has to be someone English. And I don't think it has to be someone who gives up their their club job either because they're not going to be doing it part time no that's we're just... playing fantasy no, 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 we're playing no this fantasy is just, just for the playing World fan, Cup we're playing, fan, we're playing well, fantasy land walks. just just to do that identity just for, the just, for, for the just to do the identity Alison was talking about we're English we run faster we're more passionate we're going to give everything we're going to you know book. do you have a name well there isn't really anyone who <laughs> has that sort <laughs> of instant, instant impact I'd love Sean Dyche to do it you He'd do my 4-4 too, I reckon. Yeah, he would, definitely. Yeah, Ralph Rennick, maybe. Um, <laughs> Harzen Huttel. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he's good at getting a lot of out of players. No, joking, uh, don't do a Man United run. <laughs> I won't, no. But again, it, it's... I think... I do think England need someone that screams passion a little bit more. Because if... Uh, we'll talk about Wales in a little bit as well, but I do think there are some nations who ride the wave of, of spirit, basically, and, and passion. And they're underdogs and they need it. 
And, and I think, they use it. And they use yeah. it. And I, and I do think we are one of those nations. We would love to call ourselves Brazil. Like, we don't need spirit. We're just better than them, but we're not. Exactly. We actually do need that. And, like, I, I love Gareth Southgate. And he's, you know, we've loved the summers, but he doesn't exactly embody that sense of passion that you might want on the on the touchline. So... Well, we're in the dogs now, aren't we? Because everyone thinks we're crap. So it's fine. It's a masterclass by Gareth. It's his final trick. He's played it. He's nailed it. Yeah. And this conversation proves anything is that you two have been won over and hopefully the listeners have too. What a difficult job he's got. So we're all team Gareth. I've done it. I've achieved it. In Gareth, we trust. Uh, it's a difficult job that he's making look harder maybe than it is with the players that he's got. I mean, that's the last I will say on it. But I will take you on to Wales, who I did want to briefly mention next. I talked about their team spirit. That was one of the, the highlights for me. I watched both of their games uh, during this uh, international break. They played a highly inexperienced side against Belgium, torn apart in the first half. You've got to say the likes of Kevin De Bruyne, Yuri Tielemans, Eden Hazard really enjoyed themselves on Thursday night. And it should have really been about six in the first half. Rob Page made changes. He won the second half. It ended in a 2-1 defeat. There was relegation, though, from the top tier in the Nations League, confirmed with a 1-0 defeat by Poland last night. But again, you know, sort of after going behind, and it was a moment of quality from Lewandowski that helped set the goal up. But again, they just showed that spirit. So a couple of things for me, if you're a Wales fan, to be pleased about, I think... Uh, the spirit, the legacy of 2016 lives on for me. That never give up attitude shows they're going to be tough opposition at the World Cup. And they played most of this Nations League campaign without their big names, either injured, missing or left out because they had to focus on the World Cup playoff, which was in the middle of these games. Um, but also they've got a bright future. I think the likes of Dan James, Johnson, Ruben Colwell, Sorba Thomas, Nico Williams and more coming through. Four year deal for Rob Page. I'd be pretty pleased personally if I was a Wales fan. It's interesting you say that. Hugh, because um, as I often do, I like to speak to fans of nations and clubs when it comes to these kind of topics. And uh, a friend of mine, George, is going to Qatar. He's part of the Wales supporters. Trust me, goes everywhere, supports them all over land and sea. And he said exactly the same. I'm not worried. I don't, you know, there was a lot of inexperience in that team, which there was. Thinking about talking about Luka Modric in England's midfield, the central midfield <laughs> options for Wales. You had MK Dons player, Portsmouth player. Ethan Ampadu with two appearances for Spezia in Serie A and Dylan Levitt of Dundee United playing, which, you know, is uh, not the ideal and not their first team and not their first choice. Mm. What's interesting to me, though, is about something that George mentioned and it's something you've mentioned, Hugh, is that these players coming back that you're talking about, Aaron Ramsey, like what level is his game at in terms of what it was before Joe Allen in central midfield should be fairly important to them. Um what are, where are they going to be at in terms of their game, in terms of their level, in terms of their fitness? What are they going to be able to offer at the World Cup? And I mean, it it is a boring debate in some ways, the Gareth Bale thing. But the fact that for LA, he's not played 90 minutes yet. He's doing the... He has played 11 games, though. He has, he, but he's... Do, he, and, and you do wonder whether it's partly in his contract to do this <laughs> with the World Cup in mind. Because if you look at the fixtures, it's fascinating. You just see the 60 minutes or comes on for 30. Yeah every single game for 11 fixtures which again I put that to George and was like is that not weird he's like no absolutely no bother he can do whatever the hell he wants just <laughs> as long as he can walk out onto the pitch in Qatar that's it, fine it's quite interesting for Gareth Bale because obviously we're all talking about how the fact that it's going to be in the middle of the season and how will that change things actually the World Cup comes at the end of the season in MLS. So Gareth Bell was talking about how they're managing his body so that he can peak at the end of the season for LAFC, but also go to the World Cup in peak condition as well 
that's why they're managing his time. The fact that he's still out there and not injured after 11 appearances for me is a big positive because I think if he was playing in the Premier League he would have missed one or two with injury by now yeah you've obviously followed them quite a lot over the last few seasons mm. not wanting to go back into England because we've just had a lengthy debate on them but thinking about that game thinking about if they had the experienced players back Ben Davis in defence as well I, I mean I half wonder whether as much as I've just you know defended Gareth whether a kind of passionate Wales team with their experienced players back would be a real test for England oh I, I watched both of Wales Wales's games and I thought I hope England have qualified by the time they play Wales, I, I hope they have because, um, for one, the relationship between the two nations, it's going to mean so much for Wales. But ultimately, every game that they play, even the ones that they lose, they play as if their life pretty much de- depends on it. You know, and, and that that is ultimately the difference. If England did that in their matches and they don't look like they're really striving in the same way, I imagine the ball would have fallen in the back of the net from open play by accident, to be perfectly honest. You know, it almost does for Wales all the time. Why? Because when they need a goal, they throw the ball in the box and then they throw bodies in the box and it almost falls for a player once or twice. They hit the crossbar through Bale and you're watching England and you think, it doesn't have to be as complicated as maybe we, we think it needs to be for us to have rewards. We've got quality players. We just need to get them in the area that they can strike the ball at goal, possibly have a have a header on, you know, on goal, you know, whatever it might be. But I do think I think there are a couple of differences in that Wales have the identity in terms of their formation. They play the same way in every single game. So even if the players lack quality, they're playing lower divisions when they come in, they know over the past few years exactly what they're doing because that's all they've been doing. That is literally all they have been doing. There is no real plan B other than should we put on another striker and take off a midfielder? And it's usually the attacking midfielder that goes off and they just lose their number 10 who becomes a number nine. And that's really the only tactical change they will ever make. And so I think that does help them as well. Passion and identity, Alison. It sounds like you should be a Wales fan for the World Cup. At least (laughs) we know which flag will be flying most prominently outside the Rudd Mansion. They're all the same size. Oh, well. Will, have you decided on the flags outside for the World Cup yet? Yeah, that's a very, very important tradition and it has to come at the right time. How are you going to manage the flag implementation with a Winter World Cup? Obviously, that'll be more tricky, dark nights... You know, you're going to have to think about that logistically. About lighting them, lighting, especially. Well, yeah. all, the, all the lights are going to be off this winter as well. That's so you're, true, yeah. You're, you need as much natural light as possible. Oh, I think I've got a street lamp not too far from okay. my all house. Right. Smart. Be fine. Smart move. I, I've enjoyed the international break so far, mainly because I've watched Wales's matches. Um, but England will play tonight and we will talk about that in the next podcast. Uh, if you do want to read something about England at the moment, Harry Winter saying Southgate must give England fans something to believe in. Check that out and you can read that on the Times app right now along with a great interview with Germany starlet Jamal Musiala. Up next, we'll be talking about the WSL, but remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. So it was a pretty big weekend in the Women's Super League, just the second weekend of the season, and we saw a moment of history. A record WSL crowd of 47,367 watched Arsenal's 4-0 win over North London rival Spurs at the Emirates Stadium. Molly Hudson of The Times was there and joins us on the game. Hi, Molly. Morning, Hugh. How important was the moment and and what was the experience like of of seeing that this weekend? I think it was really a... A moment, as you say, I think with these sort of big games, you you can always tell on your journey on the way in, on the tube. And I got on at Hounslow on the Piccadilly line, and there were Arsenal fans getting on with me, 
and that's the complete other end of the Piccadilly line. So I think you sort of already knew when you could see kind of that many fans with shirts on getting on the tube and as it filled up as we got closer and closer, I think it was always going to be a big attendance. I think it was a really nice atmosphere and I must say that because quite often, like especially as a woman, but I'm sure we've all been in that situation where you have to get a tube sort of after a match and it's rammed with football fans. It can be quite unpleasant on like a Saturday or Sunday, but it was such a nice atmosphere. Obviously lots of um, children, I think, were going to their first ever sort of big stadium game. And I know that lots of them were really excited and there were some cool pictures. Um, but more importantly, I think Arsenal, you know, made it a moment because of the way they've marketed this game. They've really capitalised on the fact that they had the three lionesses in Leah Williamson, Beth Mead and Lotta Wooden-Moy. And I think, you know, they did fantastically well, particularly to sell so many tickets. So they actually sold over 53,000, um, but they were reasonably cheap tickets. So about 6,000 didn't turn up on the day. But um, yeah, it was a really big moment. And particularly when Beth Mead, who was absolutely outstanding again, was substituted off and obviously there's that rule where she has to go off the closest touchline so she got like a half stadium kind of ovation as she she walked around the pitch and everyone was shouting sort of Mido and you know 47,000 fans doing that for a female player at the Emirates that really did feel like a moment of history. What do you think about the match itself? Did it do the event justice, the occasion justice, if you like? A 4-0 defeat for Spurs. Is it important that we get like more of a level playing field or is that unfair? I think there is becoming more of a level playing field because there were times back in the day, and I'm not talking years and years ago, sort of five, six years ago, where Arsenal would beat Spurs like 9-10-0. I think that was a pre-season game that was quite publicised. And Spurs have improved massively and they took a point off Arsenal last season, the Women's Super League, but they just didn't really show up. I think it was a combination of Spurs not being at their best and, and Rianne Skinner admitted that the manager after the game, she was disappointed with the way that kind of Tottenham had started in particular. Um, Beth Mead scored in, in the fifth minute. And I think it was also a combination of Arsenal being very good. I think Caitlin Ford started over Stina Blackstenius, which maybe people wouldn't have expected, but the Australian has had a really good start to the season. And I think she sort of posed a lot of problems for Tottenham that they didn't quite have the answers to. And then, you know, you see the big players that really rose to the occasion, Beth Mead, Vivian Meadamar. So I think it was a combination of Swears not really turning up, but Arsenal also being, you know, bang on form. And I think for me, having watched the first few, well, first two games of the season now from, all, from most of the sort of title challengers, I think, you know, I think Arsenal are favourites for the title. Okay, that's a big shout. Arsenal favourites. We'll see if they can overturn Chelsea, who won it last year. We'll talk about them a little bit later on. Um, Everton beating Liverpool in the Merseyside derby this weekend, though. Um, kind of brought the Reds back down to earth. But under Brian Sorensen, do you think we're seeing a different Everton this season? They've signed quite a lot of young talent. And particularly for me last night, Jess Park really stood out, who is on loan from Manchester City. Um and she, she kind of showed glimpses of what she could do at Manchester City, but I know she was she was keen for more regular game time. And obviously, in those forward positions at City, you've got Chloe Kelly and Lauren Hemp, who are pretty much guaranteed starters. So it 
it feels like a really good move for her to go to Everton. And I think it was quite impressive to see so many of those young players sort of rise to the occasion in front of a big crowd at Anfield, which is not an easy thing to do. And I think it was almost the opposite for Liverpool, that they'd had that such a great start against Chelsea um, the week before. And then sort of probably went into that game as favourites, even though they're the newly promoted team and just didn't really deal with the occasion. And I know Matt Beard said after the game that he didn't want it to be an excuse, but it did feel as though they just never really got going. Yeah, I mean, 3-0, it suggests it. Um, Chelsea bouncing back, 2-0 win for them over Manchester City. City have lost some key players in the summer. Lucy Bronze, Georgia Stanway, Caroline Weir, Ellen White, of course, and their record transfer, uh, Kira Walsh. Do you think this season will show to be a big disappointment for the club? Can you see any positive signs at the moment? I think they were, uh, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair to City, to start off with the positive, I think they were better than they were in the defeat to Aston Villa. I think they're some way off being title contenders. For me, I think the title's already gone, and that sounds ridiculous to say that in the 22-game season. But if you look at last season and Arsenal finished one point behind Chelsea to finish second and they'd only lost one game all season and City have already lost two. So I think they're nowhere near that. I think the season is salvageable if if they make the Champions League, but obviously Manchester United have had a, a pretty good start. They won again yesterday, also won on the opening weekend. And I just think we, we, we spoke to obviously Gav Taylor, the manager of the game, and he was already quite sort of anti all of the questions that were kind of saying, well, you know, are you a bit worried about all of this? And he's very sort of bullish, but there wasn't a huge amount going on um, really on the pitch. Um, Buddy Shaw was very good, their striker. She was a real positive for them. But I have to say, Steph Steph Horton looked pretty poor again. Um, Serena Viegman was, was in attendance. Obviously, she's naming her their England squad this week, uh, tomorrow, in fact. And, yeah, she made she made a couple of errors, one of which was in the lead-up to a goal. So I think they've, they've really, it's defensively and in midfield, they've got problems. In attack, they look quite good with Kenny, Shaw and Hemp. But, yeah, I think Gareth Taylor is really going to hope for some sort of wins after this international break because if not, suddenly he's under a lot of pressure again. Now, we had uh, the likes of Anfield and the Emirates that you mentioned this weekend, some big crowds in women's football, and there were a number of pitch invasions this weekend as well. Have you got any concerns about that to finish, uh, Molly? I think the biggest thing is now recognising that this amount of people are going to go to games and that stewards need to be sort of switched on to the fact that there might be pitch invasions. I was was at the... Chelsea Champions League game. Um, I don't know if you remember when when Sam Kerr absolutely bodied that pitch invader that come on at, <laughs> at Kings Meadow. That was, I think, the pretty much the first time I ever remember seeing a pitch invader in women's football. That case highlighted the fact that it wasn't in the legislation. Women's football wasn't in the legislation to ensure that these people are prosecuted. It is now. It was a is a fantastic sort of belated point of moving forward but I think certainly last night at Anfield there were three separate lots of pitch invasions during the game um, two sets of which were, were kids and I think the stewards just weren't very switched onto it so I think that's the main thing now to recognise that particularly when you're playing these games at the bigger stadiums 
the the demographic is probably slightly different and people that, you know, probably wouldn't bother to pitch invade Prenton Park where Liverpool normally play the home games, they may well do if they play at Anfield. So I think it's just, you know, publicising the fact that stewards are going to be there, they're going to stop you and you're going to be prosecuted. And as soon as that happens, hopefully it will sort of clamp down on it. Yeah, fingers crossed. Okay, Molly Hudson from The Times, thank you for joining us on the game. Really appreciate it. Up next, it's a Rudd rant. Stay tuned. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, it's time for a new section <laughs> in the game podcast, which I have named Ruddy Angry. It concerns Wrexham today, the subject of a new streaming series, of course, after they were bought purely for sporting reasons, naturally, by the actors Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. Alison Rudd. You can see why I've named it Ruddy Angry, can't you? You're up to the plate. So smart. So clever. Tell us what for. What is going on? Why are you so mad? I interviewed... uh, Who's I interviewed? I interviewed Joel Ward recently, and I wanted to talk to him about... um, Ted Lasso, but actually he said, he didn't want to talk about that. He said, uh, I'm really enjoying Welcome to Wrexham. And I just started watching it and I thought, yeah, I'm going to carry on actually. If, if, if Premier League players are enjoying it, I'm going to watch it too. And I did say to Joel Ward, oh, I said, I'm going to be in that because I was at the unveiling when the, the two um, Hollywood stars came over for their press conference and you know, as I as I asked so many great questions and got so many funny answers, I thought that might be, you know, quite a big section. So I'm watching it unfold and it's beautifully done, as you'd expect, high production values while pretending to be fly on the wall. Very nicely done, slightly patronising if you push it because there's an awful lot of, um, well, ooh, this Welsh word sounds slightly rude, aren't they funny in little whales? And whales have more sheep than people. Aren't they hilarious? But... There's enough um, warmth and humour from the lead protagonists to to keep it going. I'm waiting and waiting for the big unveiling. And they play with reality. Well, what I'm saying is the programme lies to you. Now, I'm not naive. I do know programmes that are meant to be documentaries leave things out and juggle things around. But 
it was an untruth and it really really made me angry because what they have spoiler they have, alert by the way they have if you're if you are a big fan of welcome to Wrexham <laughs> And you haven't seen all the episodes, turn it off now, okay? <laughs> Stop the podcast now. Sorry, Alison Rudd, to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, they build and build to the because of COVID, you know, uh, Ryan and Rob cannot get to Wales. And when they do come, it's a big deal because they've been wanting to see the club they've bought. They've only been seeing it on Zoom chats. They don't know what they've got. And their itinerary is pretty packed. They've got two days in Wales. So to make the most of this dramatically... On screen, they put down their itinerary down the side, you know, 8 a.m., meet the groundsman, 9 a.m., meet the new CEO, 10 a.m., have a drink in a cafe run by a Welsh fan, and so on. Ding, 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 ding. They click them off. That's day one. Day two, it says 9 a.m., press conference. So I'm thinking, oh, did they have like a little local press conference before I got to the big press conference? I didn't know about that. I feel like a really rubbish journalist. I didn't know they did two press conferences. And I'm watching it, I'm thinking, that looks awfully like the press conference I might have gone to, which was at three o'clock in the afternoon. The reason they did it was they wanted to pretend, they wanted to convey that the whole thing was homespun, kindly, low-key, were not Hollywood stars at all. They even had um, the sort of... uh, guy who heads up the show for them introduce them to the media which they've cropped out so it looks like there's about eight people when in fact there were almost a hundred people trying to ask questions and there was so many cameras and there were the cameras of the Disney team filming the cameras of the local media it was huge and you could have made that look fantastic you know the setting of the sort of slightly ropey race course ground and uh, it needs work doing but it's had some work done to it and the juxtaposition of Hollywood arriving in this sort of little corner of Great Britain but no no they they trying to make out they tried well they did they said they they were introducers we just managed to get them to come along we just found them for you and then they appear and they show just two very very boring questions and there were oh, so many here we go. amazing here we go. Now questions. Now we've worked it out. <laughs> there were so many amazing questions. And people had Asked arrived by the likes of thinking, <laughs> thinking, God, there's going to be a lot of questions. How can my questions stand out? How can I make them engaged and interested? And no, they, they showed the two most boring questions, one of which was, if this was a film, what would be the Hollywood ending? I mean... There was so much more to show. And I now I realise, God, I'm so stupid. I was watching that thinking it was real and the whole thing wasn't real. Why they had to pretend it was at 9am, I don't know. It was because they wanted to make out. They just popped along on the spur of the moment and then just a little local press conference and they just popped in to say hello. Why, and why do they want to convey that? They're, they're scared of people thinking they're in it for the wrong reason. They are doing it for the the money they're getting from Disney. They're doing it for the sponsorship. They're doing it because they think it's funny rather than fun. And I don't like the fact I was there at an event and it has been portrayed as something almost the opposite of what it was. And yes, of course, I admit I'm cross because I did not appear in the programme. <laughs> and also at 9am that day, they were probably doing breakfast TV, you know, with the likes of Piers Morgan or whoever. And and it was it probably did look Hollywood. And so they, they, we'll leave that one out, won't we? We just won't show the superstars doing superstarish things. But, you know, it's TV, Alison. This is what happens in the world of Hollywood. No, I feel naive. Which you're about to enter, so... I feel naive (laughs) and I feel stupid. This is an early lesson for you, okay? Before you sit down for your your movie star negotiations, not everything you see on the movie sets is the real deal, okay? There's a bit of CGI involved. 
But in, ter- in terms of that kind of projection of the the true story, the full story, which obviously we as journalists are constantly seeking the full truth, all the truth, and not the kind of manicured version. How how do you guys feel about the kind of all these sporting documentaries that come out? They, I mean, they leave me completely numb. Do they? And I have I have such a issue sometimes when I kind of you know go and see but either either friends or people meeting them for the first time you know i'm at that age now where i'm going to millions of weddings but like oh what do you do oh i'm a sports journalist oh wow have you watched this documentary and i'm like yeah no no i haven't no i've no di- desire to watch that completely falsified documentary at all whatsoever and because to me it's just i just become such a cynic in terms of what it's showing me that i can't possibly take anything from it and i don't know whether that's wrong whether i should just kick back and with a bag of popcorn and enjoy it the Lewis Figo one for example was a great example where I, I recently downloaded that for a trip um I was taking because so many friends had said how amazing it was and it you know it gives the big billing of the amazing transfer and you're gonna get the truth and at the end of it I was like what so <laughs> so who paid what and who and who did the bad thing so who's the bad guy and you've got Figo at the start only I know the truth and then you've got three people saying different to him and you're going so hang on a minute who who's the arsehole here like what <laughs> I, I don't know you I'm for a, watching a, it a, me for being such a cynic and not going you're on holiday tom chill out stop asking so many questions but i mean you know we've got all the big clubs doing them now they're only going to get more and more it seems uh, am i, 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 I just on, enjoy all or nothing, them? on the all or nothing series yeah. that amazon produce they don't pretend that tottenham played arsenal three weeks before they played them do they i mean they might they no, might they, leave they a don't. lot of stuff on the editing floor yeah. because it doesn't suit the way that well, the, that's, that's, well how they want to look. Yeah. But to actually just pretend something was something else I on agree, a different, but t- I, different time but really annoys think, me. I almost think what you're, the point you're making and your frustration with it suggests a trajectory that's going to go from the all or nothing where this is what we film. Yes, we've edited it. You know, it's going to be a bit pristine. You're going to go even further, as you've highlighted, with we're going to bend it slightly because <gasps> it fits it fits a narrative better. Hugh, come on, you, you, you're a TV star as well. The sporting documentary genre should deal only in fact. That's my true view, view on it. In fact, all documentaries, you know, particularly if they are dealing with, you know, real-time events, chronicling, at least telling you that we are um, chronicling real-life events, okay, in real time. If you're going to do that, you can only deal in fact, in my opinion. Yeah, but I think there's, a, there's another point to be made here about the kind of the fan obsession and and football and maybe this is a completely different podcast so I won't go into it too much but these these all or nothings they're they're for Arsenal fans aren't they and for Manchester City fans they're not really for me as a journalist who supports a League One no they're team. for football fans but they're but they're for fans of those clubs specifically no, aren't they as no, well? do you not, not think no 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 not at all they are for sports fans generally because they make them in other sports as well but the Premier League is so huge that they know the attraction of of football fans to watching the programme you finally get to see what truly goes on behind the scenes at the training ground in the changing room of a Premier League club it's an easier watch if you're not a fan of the team that's being really do you think I thought one of the features that I find really weird about them is that when they get released football fans look at them as like a result like a cup final Mm. like has our club been portrayed in the right light yes they have (laughs) everyone likes our manager now and they're like celebrating it I find that very very odd yeah because I I don't know maybe like like social media and stuff like that you know I think when they saw the the you'll never walk alone clip which was a preview clip before the series you know it was like head and hands moment it was like we've just lost the cup final we're going to 
yeah, be yeah. we're going to be made a laughing stock. And then when the series came out and they weren't a laughing stock, they were like result. You know, I found I found that stuff yeah. really really weird. And and in that regard, it's for Arsenal fans. But actually, I think generally speaking, people watch it because they see something that they can't see anywhere else. Yeah, but I do wonder whether the, in that guys maybe towards Allison's point, there will be a push to more appease the the fans, the the, the fans of the team of which you're portraying because of the fevered nature. Yeah. You know, again, I've referenced it already, but Tom's excellent Chiellini interview, you know, I shared it on Twitter with the line about Maguire and the clip in which he was defending Harry Maguire. Mm. And, you know, that kind of got picked up and there were people, Manchester United fans tweeting me going, Maguire's absolutely crap, stop the PR. And I'm like, there's no PR, mate. It's just a guy who's won loads of tournaments telling a newspaper that he thinks he's a good defender. Mm. Like, but that was there was loads of them. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It absolutely happens. wild. Yeah, and that fevered nature. I do wonder whether we'll be, you know, there'll be people sat in executive suites planning these documentaries, and will they be thinking about them, or will they be thinking about like depicting an accurate story? I, I think they think about the product, and that's why I'm not a big fan of the Wrexham one because they're a smaller club who don't have the power to um, to change their public persona this is a Disney series so they don't have the power <laughs> to say if there's something that the fans disagree with they can't go on the internet it's not like Arsenal or Manchester United fans mobilising you know Wrexham fans can't mobilise to say actually that's not what our football club is like there's a real power that this programme well Wrexham fan that's very interesting Hugh because Wrexham fans did have some power they organised themselves into a trust that saved the club sold mm-hmm. out to Hollywood and, th- and now they have no voice at all mm. Yeah. Well, there's only one thing to do, guys, and that's to do a very meta, the game podcast documentary on <laughs> documentaries, which would get me the answers I want. Hugh, you confront it. You've got TV experience. And we'll make Alison happy because we can put her as front and centre star of the show. And then we're all happy. We're all yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm going to check this Welcome to Wrexham out because I look, they are superstars. I love It's Always sunny in philadelphia ryan reynolds is all right i like deadpool too so you know there are some some people that attract me to watching the show i like football by the way too so i'm going to check it out Alison, i'm sorry you didn't get bigger a bigger role <laughs> i didn't get a role at all well that's devastating for you devastating <laughs> but the good news is you know they didn't pay you and then not put you in or didn't audition you and then you know but we all knew that you asked the best question at the press conference and that's what made the news that week and truly given our jobs that's what matters all right the journalism journalism wins thank you very much tom clark and alison rudd thank you all for listening i will be back on thursday looking ahead to the return of the premier league and back at the game at wembley between england and germany as well we'll see you very soon but remember if you'd like more of our award-winning journalism check it out it's the times.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you soon listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.